0: Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? Good morning, yes. Well, my name is Trey. As Daniel said a little bit earlier, I have the pleasure of serving here as one of the ministers at this wonderful church, and it is my honor to be able to teach the message to you all this morning. But before we kind of jump into the message, I just want to give you guys a shout-out. Can we give a round of applause for what Be the Church Day was last weekend? Yeah, as a staff, it was awesome to be able to talk about how our congregation, how our people were out in the community being the hands and feet of Jesus. I mean, it's one thing to say that you love Jesus, but to actually go out and prove that you love Jesus by how you love others in your community is something um, just remarkable. And so it was awesome. So we want to say thank you to everyone who who was out there this past weekend. It's one of my favorite events and days of the year because we not only get to say that we love God, we get to prove that we love God and prove our mission statement that in how we love others and show. And to my hope and my prayer this past weekend, as we did be the church day, my hope and my prayer was that that idea of serving our community would bleed into the and bleed into the core of our hearts and in our minds and become daily habits and daily disciplines, so that in every aspect of your life in your workplace, in your home, whatever you all do as people, because we in today's world are the most busy people ever, that in every aspect of our lives, that we would love God and prove it by how we love others and that the people of the Metro East would know that people who come to Leclerc Christian Church really believe in what they say they believe in. So, let's pray this morning. God, we are grateful for you. We are grateful for the opportunity to be able to learn more about you and your son And it's your breath in our lungs, Father, and we, God, we want to glorify you in every way that we possibly can. And so this morning, as we study the greatest event and learn about the greatest event that changed literally everything, God, would we not fall short in remembering what it meant to experience the event that changed everything? That, God, you sending your son down to die on the cross was was what you chose to do. But it wasn't anything less than a sacrifice. So, God, we're grateful for your son and for what it means for us. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. What is worth our belief? What is worth our belief? Christmas is around the corner, and for many of us, this is extremely exciting. Lovers of Christmas, raise your hand in the air, okay? Oh, the Christmas is around the corner, it's awesome. Some of you have already put up decorations, some of you are already doing some crazy things, and I think you're crazy for that, but it is okay. For some of us, we love Christmas. Others of us, from now until the end of the year, we just live in a constant state of like a a large eye roll, right? You've seen the meme, right? You're just like, oh my gosh, this is so annoying. All these people are crazy, right? Right? But Christmas, um, I saw this picture the other day, and it was pretty funny, right? So it had the calendar of November all the way to the end of the year. And there was, a, there was two circles, right? There was one large circle that went around, and it was all over the months of November and December. And it was one big circle, and it was labeled on all the dates except for one, and it said Christmas. And then on the other one, you could, if you really, really squinted really close, you saw one date, right? It was that Thursday that everybody seems to forget about, and it was a small circle, and it said thanks giving. I feel like this is how we look at Christmas, though. I mean, this is how we treat treat Thanksgiving, you know, like it's an afterthought. I am a huge lover of Thanksgiving, right? And a very pastoral thing for me to say would be, Thanksgiving comes before gift giving, amen? Okay, Um, (laughs) I love Thanksgiving, and I love Christmas. Don't get me wrong, I do love Christmas, but after Thanksgiving. Anybody who does it before, um, I guess it's November 27th, you are weird to me, you are weird to me. When I was a kid, Christmas, though, was a huge deal to my family, or more so, Christmas was a huge deal to my mom. She would go all out for Christmas. We'd get a real Christmas tree, which if you haven't done it, it is, a, it's a task, okay? Um, so we would get a real tree. We'd get decorations, cookies. She would go all, all out on presents, you name it. My mom was a different person from the end of Thanksgiving until the end of the year. She was a different woman, but as kids, we loved this because she would go all out on presents as well. But there was one rule. And parents, I just want to disclose some information. If you have not let anyone know, your kids know, if there's kids in the room, and a certain someone may or may not be fictional, maybe cover your kids' ears right now. But my mom's one rule was that if you wanted presents, you must believe that a certain someone was real. Which led to some very comical moments as kids, because, um, Obviously, we know that a certain someone doesn't always, you know, seem to be real. But what is worth our belief? I had two siblings growing up. I had an older sister who was three years older than me and a younger brother who was three years younger than me. And I was probably in third grade, third or fourth grade, when a dumb kid decided to tell me that a certain someone was not real. He broke the news to me that a certain someone was not real, and I truly believed that if I believed in this certain someone, that I would get gifts, that is, this certain someone would come down to my chimney, which I did not have, and I would get these gifts every single year. But now, it was ruined. This thought was ruined in my mom in, in my mind, and so I asked my mother, I said, hey, um... Little Johnny told me that this isn't seemed to be true, that this isn't true, but her being awesome, she gives me a great cover-up story, and she basically says, well, whether or not he is right, whether or not he, that is true or not, if you want presence, you will believe. So me now conflicted, knowing that it's all for show, I say, uh, I guess I believe then she told me that if I were to tell the lie to a certain that a certain someone doesn't exist or isn't real to my younger brother that I would get socks and coals for Christmas. My mom was always playing Jedi mind tricks on me as a kid, but it worked. Eventually all of me and my siblings found out that a certain someone wasn't real, but it was worth it to believe we always said to our mother that we believe because it was worth it to believe we wanted get gifts under the tree on christmas morning so what did we say we said well we believe right that polar express movie right we believe i kid you not until my brother graduated high school until he was 18 years old every single year during the christmas holiday we would put out cookies for a certain someone and every single christmas morning those cookies were what eaten and gone But just like our silly belief in a certain someone, I'm not going to say the name this morning, is worth it. Just like for my siblings, a belief in a certain someone was worth it, on a serious note, our belief in Jesus is worth it. Our belief in Jesus is worth it. This morning, though, I want to start at the end, the end of the 20th chapter of the book of John. We made many mentions throughout this series on what the purpose is of this book of John. But I think it's essential for us to continue to reiterate the purpose of this book. John chapter 20, verse 31, it says this, but these are written, these being everything that has come before, all of the signs, all of the story, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But these are written that you may believe That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. All of this, every part of John's gospel, every story, every sign, every miracle, every moment written down in this book is so that you and I and the world around us will believe. And so the question that arises for us this morning as we cover the event that changed everything is will you choose to believe? Will you choose to believe in the gospel? Will you choose to live like you believe in the gospel? Will you not just claim to say that you believe in Jesus or in what he did for us, that he really lived, that he really died? Will you choose to really believe it? My goal today is to show you that Jesus shows his divinity through his victory over sin and death. And because he does that, he is worthy of our belief. We have made it. We've been in this series in the book of John for some time now. And finally, we have reached the pinnacle point of the gospel, the cross and the resurrection. My plea for you this morning is whether you've heard this this gospel message a hundred times or maybe this is the first time you've ever heard it, would you not let it become mundane? Would you not let the cross and the resurrection become something like an afterthought? That's something that every week we come and we do communion. Every week we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Would the cross and the resurrection really mean something to you? Because the story of the cross and the resurrection, it literally changes everything. Here in this scripture this morning, God's redemptive plan to restore mankind was fulfilled. And because of that, Jesus is worthy of our belief. Our main text this morning is John chapter 19, verse 28 through 30, and John chapter 20, verse 1 through 18. At this point, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, and he's been arrested by the Roman soldiers. And then they take Jesus to be questioned by the high priest. And the high priest, he is the one who at one point said, there couldn't be anything more. Uh, he, said, he says this, it is better that one man should die for the people. And this couldn't be anything more than the truth. But this man, this high priest who once said said this, had different intentions in mind. He had the intentions of himself. He had the idea that if Jesus is greater, if Jesus is dead, then I can be greater. You see, Jesus is, is constantly attacking these religious leaders, constantly telling these Pharisees that they're not doing exactly what they're supposed to do, and so they want him dead. And so this priest, he at one point says, it is better that one man die for the people. But what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. Then we see the denial of Peter, not once, not twice, but three times. Fear can cause us to do the unimaginable sometimes. Then we see Jesus is brought before Pilate, the Roman governor. It's important for us to understand, it's important for us to note and to see and to realize that the Jewish people could not kill anyone without the Roman governor's permission. Well, Without Roman officials' permission. So they take him before Pilate. Issue being, Pilate doesn't see anything wrong with Jesus. Pilate, is one; he sees him as an innocent man. The only thing that he's a little bit worried about is that Jesus potentially could ensue a rebellion against the Roman army. But in this moment, he sees him as innocent. Problem, though, the moment he brings him before the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people... They look at him and they say, crucify him, crucify him, placing Pilate in a very difficult position. This places Pilate in a really difficult position because if he does nothing, then maybe, just maybe, there's going to be a riot that happens. Which for us doesn't really make sense, but it's important to note that a Roman governor not able to take care of its its Jewish people could easily be killed. And so Pilate is put into a difficult position because he doesn't want to riot on his hands because he knows in the eyes of Caesar, if he isn't able to take care of the Jewish people, he will be let go. And when I say let go, that does not mean that he loses his job. It probably means that he will be killed. So Pilate has him flogged, beaten, almost unrecognizable. But that's not enough for them. He brings him out again. He brings Jesus out again. And they once again yell, crucify him, crucify him. Days earlier, they had shouted through the rooftops, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, King of the Jews. Weeks, or Days earlier, they had bowed at his feet, and now they are shouting, crucify him, and treating Jesus as if he is a criminal. And so, Pilate, not knowing what to do, he decides to give them over to do exactly what they are wanting. So here we are today. Jesus is hanging on a cross, two feet off the ground, nails pierced in his hands and in his feet, a crown of thorns on his head, bloodied and bruised, almost unrecognizable. And he's laying there between two criminals, convicted of three things, that he loved sinners, that he healed on the Sabbath, and that he claimed to be the Son of God. And something that's often missed is there's there's four people who are at the cross there, There is Jesus' mother, Jesus' mother's sister, Mary Magdalene, and John. And that is where our text picks up today. John chapter 19, verse 28 through 30, it says this Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, and he died. This statement from Jesus, I am thirsty, is Jesus' fifth statement on the cross. The first being, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Right? How interesting that the Savior of the world, in the midst of the most pain that he could ever endure, looks to his killers, looks to the people who are tormenting him, and he looks at them and he says, Father, forgive them. For those who killed him, he died for Then the second statement on the cross, today thou shalt be with me in paradise, making us remember that no one is too far gone for God to be able to redeem. Then the third statement on the cross, behold, woman, here is your son, and here is your mother, speaking directly to Mary, his mother, and John, that understanding that Jesus, even in the midst of his pain, is looking down and seeing the pain in his mother and in his brother, John, brother being his friend. And he looks at them and he's saying he recognizes that no matter if his daughter, if his mother is the mother of the savior of the world, this pain is unimaginable. The idea of losing a child is unimaginable. And so Jesus looks to her pain. Jesus meets her in her pain and he says, This is your son. And son, this is your mother. And fourth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the moment where Jesus is experiencing the worst thing that could ever happen to us in our entire life. The worst thing ever being that we would be completely and utterly separated from the Father. And then we have the fifth statement. This prophetic fulfillment of Jesus taking us back to Psalm 69, verse 21, which says, But instead they give me poison for food. They offer me sour wine from my thirst. Jesus, he asks for a drink, and the soldiers respond quickly and dip a sponge into some wine vinegar. You see, Psalm 69 is quoted multiple times in the New Testament. The manner in which this psalm is quoted seems to show that the sufferer here is the Messiah, that Jesus was an innocent sufferer. And that when he suffered, this was the idea of the tormentors adding affliction on top of affliction. That Jesus is in the midst of the most painful, the most embarrassing way to die that a human could do at that point in time. And so Jesus is hanging on the cross and his tormentors look at him. And when he says he's thirsty, instead of giving him water, they give him wine vinegar, adding affliction on top of affliction because they could care less about Jesus. And then Jesus says the famous lines of, it is finished. Jesus had completed and accomplished what he had come to earth to do. He had completed and accomplished to die for the sins of mankind. Jesus fulfilled everything. And we see it in Psalm 69 that Jesus was doing everything to fulfill his mission, even by doing something as simple as, as drinking the wine vinegar. See, when Jesus said it was finished, he meant it. When Jesus said it was finished, he meant it. His arrest, his torture, his crucifixion were no surprise to him. This end was his his purpose. This was a cry of, 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 of triumph. It is accomplished. You see, Jesus is not a victim, but a servant doing God's bidding, accomplishing what God intended. God intended for his son to die. God had planned it. Jesus had predicted it. And then Jesus had the nerve to go on and fulfill it showing that Jesus was truly divine, but now he's dead. Now Jesus is dead. This whole book has been written simply so that you and I and the world around us will believe, not simply knowing that Jesus is who he says he is, not simply knowing the stories of Jonah and the whale, not simply knowing the stories and the miracles, but truly believing who Jesus is and living like we believe it. And for the first time, the disciples' belief was truly going to be put to the test. Can you imagine being the disciples? Can you imagine being the disciples, the emotions they must have felt, how sad they would have been, so confused. This was supposed to be the Savior of the world. He was supposed to reign. He was supposed to take over the Roman, Roman officials and to take them into glory. The Savior of the world was not supposed to die in their mind. They had left their complete lives to follow this man. They had seen him heal the sick. They had seen him bring people back to life. They believed he was the savior of the world, and he dies. And not only does he die, he dies a painful and embarrassing death. And for two days, they would have had to sit in the middle. And when I say middle, I mean those moments where you sit in the valley and you don't know that there's a way out in those moments where you are questioning everything that you've ever believed in in your entire life, that middle is what they would have sit in. And I would imagine that many of us have experienced this. As you wait to find out if you got the job or as you wait to find out what your financial situation looks like without you getting the job. As you live in a constant state of anxiety or depression, fear of sickness, fear of whatever is in front of you, and there doesn't seem to be a way out as you try to repair a marriage or maybe as you try to figure out what life would be like at the end of one. Or maybe you are literally sitting in a waiting room, waiting to hear the news, waiting to hear the phone call of something that could drastically change your life forever, your family's life forever, your spouse's life forever. The thing of the matter is that the middle can be so hard if there is no hope. The middle can be so difficult if there is no hope. We long for the middle, for the wait to be as short as possible, but if I'm being honest, we all know this. sometimes the middle, sometimes the wait, lasts way longer than we would ever wish it to. But imagine yourself as the disciples. Place yourself in the upper room as the disciples must have wept as their Messiah, as their teacher, as their friend died on the cross. Imagine being there as they questioned every single moment that they had spent with Jesus. Had they missed it? Had they been tricked by Jesus? Had he bamboozled them? Had, was he really a false teacher? Was it worth it to believe in him at all? Had Jesus fooled them? Had they walked away from their good lives for nothing? Nothing. The questions they must have asked. They would have looked back on every single conversation, every single miracle. Surely they remembered sitting at the, at the fire and Jesus looks at them and says, Surely I will have to die, but I will rise again from the dead. But they wouldn't have believed it. For only Jesus could bring someone back. They remembered the way that he died. Put yourself in the situation, being your friend, watching him die this painful death. The nails in his hands and in his feet And trying to imagine, there's no way he could return from this. Bloodied and bruised, how could he return from that? Believing in that felt impossible. And so for for two days, they sat in the hopeless middle. They sat in sadness with the understanding of everyone else that when someone dies, they stay dead. But on the third day, they learned that the middle may be dark. But it doesn't last forever. And on Sunday morning, they heard the greatest news ever told. The news that changed absolutely everything. Will you turn with me to John chapter 20, verse 1 through 18? I'm going to read through it. And this is, I hope you get as fired up about this story as I do, because this changes everything. John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Humble flex, okay? He bent over and looked in the strips of linen, lying there but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They, didn't, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, and one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't really realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. She told them that he had said these things to her. Imagine being Mary. She had wept as Jesus had healed her from seven demons. She had wept at the feet of Jesus as he bore the sin and shame of humanity and he took his final breaths she wept in the other rooms with the other disciples she wept at the tomb and she was outraged that someone would have the nerve to take him away but the moment that he says her name she knew that Jesus was alive She heard her name from one like no other. It was Jesus. He had risen, and this had changed everything in her mind. She had been been healed over and over again. She had witnessed Jesus do the unimaginable, and he had done the unimaginable to her. Walter and Jr., in his recalling of this moment, he says, Grief, grief while you are grieving lasts forever, but under God forever is a day. Weeping, darling Magdalene. May last the night, but the joy come with the sunrise, and your morning shall be dancing, and gladness shall be the robe around you. Wait, wait. She learned that the middle may be dark, but it doesn't last forever, because Jesus did it. Jesus conquered death. Jesus did it. He conquered sin and death. The event of the resurrection changes absolutely everything. This event is the cornerstone of our faith. It validates Jesus as God's son. Because of the resurrection, we can believe in him implicitly and follow him completely. The resurrection validates Jesus' work on the cross. And had Jesus not rose from the dead, we would not only be still dead to our sins, but Jesus would have simply just been a martyr. More than anything... The resurrection gives us victory over death and gives us hope in our own resurrection and future. Jesus' triumph over sin and death brings us into a relationship with God. Because of what Jesus did for you and for me, we have a relationship with the Father. Jesus never wanted us to have to experience what he had to experience on the cross. Six hours Six hours of complete separation from God the Father. Jesus did that so that you would never have to encounter that. It changes everything. Because he really lived. He really died. And he really rose again from the dead. Do I have any uh, WWE fans in the room? Don't hide. You can be honest. None of you, okay. Pro wrestling is staged. I'm spoiling everything this morning. Before the wrestlers ever were to go out, it has been predetermined who is going to win. From the beginning, it has been predetermined who is going to win, but the point of the battle is not to decide the winner, but to put on a show for the crowd. The winner of the match does not battle for victory, but it actually battles from a place of victory. He or she battles knowing that they've already won. And in the same way, those who come to know Jesus Christ have already won see God allows us to go through our Christian walk not to win the victory but to show off the world show off to the world that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world to show us that as we go through hardships and trials, we don't fight for victory. But in all honesty and in all truth, we fight from a place of victory. in church, that changes everything. You see, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection if we will simply trust him. Because of Jesus, in the middle we can have hope. Because of Jesus, in the weight, we can have hope. Because of Jesus, in the valley, we can have hope. Because of Jesus, in the storm, we can have hope. Because Jesus has conquered over sin and death. And because of that truth, we fight from a place of victory. And that truth, church, is worthy of our belief. Our belief in Jesus is worth it, but you and I must truthfully believe in him. Timothy Keller states in his understanding of the resurrection he writes if Jesus rose from the dead then you have to accept all that he said if Jesus didn't rise from the dead then why worry about any of what he said The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And the resurrection is a fact far better attested to than any event recorded in human history, whether ancient or modern. Jesus really lived. Jesus really died. And Jesus rose from the dead. So if this is true, then we have unbounding hope that is worthy of our belief so this morning i want to close as we began john chapter 20 verse 31 and i want you to believe this as you read it but these are written that you may believe that jesus is the messiah the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name and my final question for you this morning is will you choose to believe Will you truly choose to live your life as you believe in the Savior of the world, that he really lived, that he really died, and that he really rose from the dead because his belief is worth it, and he is worthy of our belief. Will you pray with me this morning? God, I am so grateful for your son. I'm grateful for what he did for us on the cross. I'm grateful that there will never be a moment where I will be completely separated from you because of his sacrifice God, this morning as we learn your word this morning as we worship this morning as we remember through communion this morning as we go home God, would we never forget that the cross and the resurrection changes everything God, you are so good. God's redemptive plan to restore mankind. God, you are so good. You did it. You fulfilled it. And we love you for it. So will we never forget the cross and the resurrection? And will we never make it become mundane? Would it always be the thing that leads every action that we do? And would we truly believe in it? Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.